Because I think there's one thing that we would all say over the last 18, 24 months. It's been a tough season. It's been a frustrating season. It's been a season of ups. It's been a season of downs. It's been a season of, of longing for normalcy. It's been a season of loss. And, and so, God, we, we need you to revive us again. We need you to restore us. We need you to rejuvenate us. So today, though, I, I'm going to talk about what I really think is a missing piece of most people's art arsenal, if you will, if you want to put it that way, a missing piece of, of most people's arsenal of why so many times we're not on a sustainable path, of why so many times we're susceptible to deception, of why so many times, you know, we'll say something, hey, I, tomorrow's going to be different and it's not different, or hey, I'm going to be different and we're not different, or next time's going to be different and we're not, or hey, I'll do better next time and we don't, or hey, I'm going to try harder and we do, but nothing, nothing happens. And so there's a reword that we're going to introduce ourselves to today that I think is going to give us all some kind of homework with God, with our, with our families, with our small groups to help us be on a sustainable path where we're walking in a vibrant relationship with God. We're not susceptible to the discouragements and the deceptions of the enemy. So to get there, we're going to look at a, a famous character in the Bible. Most of you have heard about him. Even if you, maybe you haven't been in church for a while, that's okay. His name is uh, King Solomon. He's one of the wisest guys to ever live, wrote some books of the Bible, some great sayings. And we're just going to journey with him and see a, a gap and see where he's susceptible to, uh, to slipping back and where he needs something that's missing. So here we go. I'm just going to summarize the content of chapter 10. It says, King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and wisdom. And this is something he had prayed for. He said, God, give me wisdom. And God did. And that enabled him just to be this incredible king. It says, the whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. So all of chapter 10 or all of that content is about the favor that he's enjoying, the riches that he's enjoying, the reputation that he has uh, earned all around the known world at that time. And then chapter 11 takes this hard turn where things just go in a different direction. Let me just summarize with a couple of verses. It says, he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God. So the God who had put wisdom in his heart, the God that had favored him and blessed him, it says, he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. So Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the, abhor the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. And so we get you know, even this, this editorial of how bad this idol that he was following. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. And, and so here's the question that I'm asking myself. I'm like, how do you go from having everything and, and life going your way and you're, you know, you're successful, you're wealthy, you're wise. God has blessed you with this incredible gift of wisdom. And then the ne very next story in your life, if you will, you turn the page, the very next chapter of your life, and you're not loyal to God. And, and here's what we know about Solomon. He had spiritual experiences that were amazing. He knew about prayer. He, he wrote about prayer. He, he knew uh, about God personally from his dad. He can't, like, can't look at his he can't look at his past and blame his parents. He, he's just like, what happened? 
What was wrong? What was missing? And, and to fill in some of the gaps, you go to the first part of chapter 11. It says this, King Solomon loved many foreign women. And, and some of you are like, oh, there's where it goes astray, right? You know, in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, so he had Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow other gods. So he knew it was wrong. He knew it was dangerous. I mean, he's the wisest man in the world. Some of you are like, he's not that wise if he's trying to manage that many women. But that's another story, right? And then it says this, to these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. And it even gives us a number, which is astronomical. He had 700 wives. Some of you need to read the Bible. You're excited now, right? Where is that? You know, it's amazing, right? He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 who weren't his wives, they were concubines, and they turned his heart away. Now, first of all, if it can happen to Solomon, and he's been given the wisdom of God, it can happen to all of us. We're all one decision away from stupid, right? And, and second of all, the question that we need to ask is, what happened? And, and how did this happen? Because here's what I firmly believe. I firmly believe nobody, 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 nobody is here listening by accident. I firmly believe God, if you're not a Christian, God wants you to become one. He wants to call you his son or daughter. I firmly believe that if you're here, God wants to give you some re. God wants to restore or rejuvenate or refresh, or God wants to revive you in himself and in his will for your life and his plans for your life and why he died on the cross for you. He didn't die on the cross for you and I so we could go through stuff like this and, and have our hearts you know, just drifting and, and everything. So the, the question is this, what was missing from Solomon's arsenal? He had everything. I mean, we've all prayed, God, give me a great worship experience. Let me give me an ooey-gooey feeling. You know, he had that. We've all prayed, God, let me have knowledge of your will. He had that. We've all, we've all prayed, God, I want a great family. I mean, his dad, you read the prayer of blessing. His dad prayed over him. It's amazing, right? We've all prayed, God, I, I want to be, you know, successful. I want to know right from wrong. He had all of that. Every kind of, if you took our prayer list out and said, you know, I pray for this, I pray for this, I pray for this, pretty much everything you and I pray for Solomon had. So what happened? And the bottom line, as I, I sort of dissected and prayed through this, is Solomon was careless with his heart. Solomon was careless with his heart. Now, when I say heart, I don't mean just our emotions. I mean the operating system of your life. I mean the CEO center of your life where all the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings, everything, the will, all that kind of just comes and produces uh, direction and, and influences who we are, how we decide, how we choose, what we say yes, what we say no, all of those kind of things. So Solomon was careless with his heart. That's what happened. And see, I think as we wrestle in the American church, as we wrestle with how unchristlike we are, and I say that, and I mean, that may make some Christians upset, but you go ask non-Christians what they think of Christians, they don't think we look like Jesus. Okay, they don't think on social media we're suddenly like, man, they're real Christ-like because you know most most people aren't turned off by Jesus; they're turned off by Christians who say they're supposed to be like Jesus. Okay, and and, and that, that's just you know this is where it is. 
and, and, I, and I look at my own life. Listen, listen, listen. I, I, I'm going to put myself out, right? I look at my life. And, man, you know, the COVID stuff and all this stuff and my reactions, my responses, I'm like, man, full honesty. I was like, God, I thought I was over that by now. God, I thought I should have had victory in that area by now. God, I can't believe I thought that, said that, wanted that, wished that, ignored you in that. I mean, you just put it all out there. And it's like, where did that start? Why? And I have to believe that the diagnosis up here on the screen, that I could say Matt has been careless with my heart. And God's interested in our hearts. In fact, let me say this. God's more interested in your heart than your health, than your bank account. God's more interested in your heart than how many friends you have. God's more interested in your heart than whether you're single or not. It's where he works. And here's the thing about the heart. Here's the thing about the heart, okay? The heart is meant to be led, not followed. And something or someone is always going to lead the heart. Always. The heart's always going to be led. Who led Solomon's heart? The thousand women he was trying to manage. What leads my heart? What leads your heart? You know, so this, this notion that's out in society, oh, just follow your heart. Please don't, let's not parent our kids that way. Let's not even believe that because that's a lie because that's not how your heart's designed. It's heart, your heart's designed to be led, not followed. And something or someone is always going to lead the heart. And, and if we're not careful, something or someone will lead our hearts away from where God wants to take us and keep us and sustain us and strengthen us and bless us and favor us and use us. And, and, and so the question then becomes, what do we do about it? Now, he, 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 let's just go back to the text for just a second. I wish... The next verse would say, and Solomon realized the folly of his ways and repented and came back to God. I mean, that would be like a nice kind of church ending. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. See you next week, right? It doesn't say that. In fact, it gets even worse. The, the man who built the temple that David could not build and the Shekinah glory of God filled that temple. I mean, the manifest glory of God, a taste of heaven filled that temple. Look what he did. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. So the same guy that built the temple for the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Alpha, the Omega, builds a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem where he built the temple to God. The one who blessed him gave him the wisdom so he could get rich and get a reputation and be known worldwide as the guy you went to to get advice. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And God not only was angry, he had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods. But Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. So he's careless about his heart. But what happened and what was missing? What happened and what was missing? And, and I think about, again, my life. I think about the, the challenges of the American church. 
And most Christians and most Americans and most people in churches will say they're a Christian and will say, man, I had this great experience way back when, but it may not look like Jesus right now. I mean, and we'll, talk, we'll point to things that, that happened in our past, but, but, but it didn't sustain into our future. And we just sort of plateau or we just sort of get satisfied uh, and we become less and less like Jesus. But we're Christians, right? And so what was missing, though, for Solomon, because I think if we could figure out how not to be careless about our heart, if we could figure out what was missing, I think that would put us on a sustainable path of bringing glory to God, a sustainable path of being transformed into greater degrees of Christ's likeness, a sustainable path of moving toward the plans that God has for us. And I start to get hints as I kind of surveyed scripture. There's this, there's this story in, in the book of Acts that this church starts up in this town called Antioch. And, and, and the disciples or the apostles, they weren't really thinking that anything special was going to happen in Antioch. Uh, but apparently something did. Holy Spirit shows up. People start becoming Christ followers. So the apostles in Jerusalem send this incredible, incredible first century Christian named Barnabas down to Antioch. And what he tells the Christians at Antioch is very similar to the, it addresses the concern that I'm talking about that I see in Solomon. Let's look at just one verse. So like Acts 11, 23. So when he, Barnabas, arrived at Antioch and he saw the grace of God, he saw the favor of God, he saw God's gospel being honored and people worshiping Jesus and coming to faith in Christ and being disciples and students of Jesus and, and starting to say, hey, I want to do marriage in a way that glorifies God. I want to raise kids in a way that glorifies God. I want to go to work in a way that glorifies God. He sees the grace of God. It says he was glad, and then he encouraged them, all of them, to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, not careless hearts. So, so, so that, that sounds good, but let's, let's unpack that for just a second, okay? Let's, let's let the Word of God work here, right? So let, let's look at this for just a second. Here's what this tells me. One experience with the grace of God is not going to guarantee a future walk with God. You follow? Tell you, I'm Matt Evans. I became a Christian when I'm eight. I'm done, right? No, you're in danger because your heart can be careless unless your heart remains true and is devoted. How do we do that? We'll get there. How do we get there? So, so you, see, you see this, right? That, that there, there's a susceptibility that the heart has that we can be in the midst of revival, which what's, in Antioch it's an awakening because they'd never even heard the grace of God before, right, in the gospel. So we can be in the midst of this and still we see the encouragement, hey, don't let your heart wander. Don't let your heart drift. Don't let your heart get, get deceived. Stay true, stay devoted. And so, so I go on this journey through Scripture, and I start to find examples of men and women who in the midst of, of battle, you know, and, and like battle, like life can be hard battle. Like life, is, like I'm not where I thought I would be battle. Like I never asked for this battle. I never wanted this battle. But people who stayed devoted, people who stayed true, people who didn't let their heart go off in a wrong direction, and so I started thinking about this guy named Joseph in Genesis. You know, his brothers sell him into slavery, throw him in a pit, tell his dad, tell his dad that he'd been murdered by a, a wild animal. And then he ends up becoming, you know, this, uh, kind of the, the chief slave, if you will, of a guy named Potiphar. 
And you get this interesting little interaction between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's going to make some of you want to read the Bible even more because it's like, wow, I didn't know that was in the Bible. So Joseph was well-built and handsome. Wow, that sounds like I just read something like that on the cover of People magazine. All right, so where are they going with that? You, you know where they're going with that. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. He refused. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, it's in the Bible. So what conquered his biology? Because, I, mean, I, I mean, I think all of us could say, you know, I, many of us could say, if not physically, certainly mentally and emotionally, we've lost this one, right? So, so what was, what about Joseph? How, how, how did he refuse this? I mean, his life had been hard. I mean, this was like the one time in the whole story where sort of something, quote, unquote, in a worldly sense goes his way. And nobody's going to find out. I mean, he's, he's kind of of that age where you're looking, right? And he refuses. So his heart is not careless. Let's, let's unpack it even more. He talks about it. He, he says back to her, he says, look, no one in this house is greater than I am. And your master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. So how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? Here's a guy who's already decided that his heart is already set. I am going to honor God. No matter what pit I'm in, no matter what house I'm in, no matter matter what temptation comes my way, I am going to honor God. And anything that would tempt me to dishonor God, I am going to label it as immense evil. I'm not going to start negotiating with it. Oh, well, there's nothing really wrong with it. Oh, nothing. How do you find out? Oh, how far is too far? No. Anything that would take my heart away from being devoted to God is labeled immense evil evil and I refuse it. I don't negotiate with it. Example number two, we go on in the New Testament. We go to this guy named Daniel. Daniel's a young man who's who's captured in Jerusalem by an invading power and they hauled off a lot of young men to come back to the capital in Babylon and, uh, and serve the pagan king. And God had said all this would happen if the Israelites disobeyed him. So Daniel's caught in the wash of that. He's in the shrapnel of disobedience. And and, and let's just be honest. Culturally, we know, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but most people believe that young men who were captured and put into exile were made eunuchs. So there's not a lot going for Daniel. Not a lot going for Daniel. He, I mean, if you, you talk about, get, I'm mad at God. I mean, Daniel had some reasons to be mad at God. In fact, if Daniel were mad at God, we would all sit there and give him sympathy and empathy and say, oh, no, we understand because, man, this is not where you wanted to be in your 20s, a eunuch going to serve a pagan king who thinks your God's not real. But here's what we get from Daniel in just one verse, verse 8. 
Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. And so he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat any of these unacceptable foods. So I'm scratching my head and I'm like, okay, Daniel exiled 600 miles, left his family, left his hometown, has to go serve and work for a king that destroyed his hometown. Not where he envisioned when he, hey, Daniel, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hey, I want to be a eunuch and I want to work for a pagan king. No, it's not what he asked for. And yet still, Daniel has determined, similar word to devoted, Daniel has determined he is going to remain, the biblical word would be consecrated. He would, he's going to remain separated. He's going to remain holy, set apart for Yahweh. The God that we would understand if he were mad at, he's not. He remains determined, devoted, dedicated to him. So you, you got to peel back and, and you say this, summation. Joseph and Daniel have this deep determination in, in their food choices, in their dating decisions, small things maybe to some of us, this deep determination that's built upon their devotion to God and their, their, their determination to remain with, with a heart devoted to God. Because we, we would all really, we look at this and we're like, okay, this is crazy. This is amazing. But because when we say this, compromises in small can lead to compromises in all. I mean, when did Solomon suddenly become disloyal to God? Was it on wife number two or three or 742? The heart just drifts, right? The heart just drifts towards, it's going to be led by someone or something. And, and, and Acts 11 Antioch shows us, hey, the heart can one day be on fire for God. But Barnabas comes along and said, stay there, don't drift. Just because you have it today, just because you're devoted and determined today doesn't mean you won't be tomorrow. Something's got to go on inside of your heart. And we see a guy named Joseph show up in the middle of a very challenging temptation and refuse it. We see a guy named Daniel show up in the middle of a very difficult, dangerous set of circumstances under a pagan king and determined to stay set apart to this God. So what did they have? that I would subscribe all of us need a little bit more of. Here's my word, resolve. Resolve. That I'm resolved. And this is not, hey, next time's gonna be better. This is, I want next time to be better, so I'm going to take action now so that it ensures next time will be better. This is a resolve, resolve of the heart, right? Where I am resolved that I am going to be and I am going to cooperate and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to determine. This is not negotiation. This is not consideration. This is resolution and resolve. In, in fact, I would say it this way. It's deep determination or decisive intention to do something as if life depended on it. And I'm going to couple that with our life in Christ. So deep determination, decisive intention to do something as if life depended on it. And let's just be honest. When Jesus appeared, he made this statement. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He invited us to follow him. Our hearts are designed originally to follow God and to worship God. And our heart's going to follow something. So in a sense, when we make a resolve to do something for God, to, do, to keep our hearts pure for God, our lives do depend upon it because Jesus is our life. 
And so when we decide, when I'm talking about this, this reword of resolve, here's what I mean in, in a spiritual definition that we see working out in these stories and not working out in Solomon's life. It's giving the heart protection and also giving the heart direction to maintain and maximize our devotion and discipleship to Jesus. Our devotion is our love and our emotion and our ambition. Our discipleship is I am going to remain a student, an apprentice of Jesus. And see, now listen, I, I, I honestly think one of the weaknesses of American Christianity has been we have told people supposedly how to miss hell and make heaven. But we have not told people and taught people how to keep their heart on fire for our very life, which is Christ Jesus. So we haven't said to people, you've got to put resolves in your heart. Your heart, you're not supposed to be a jellyfish with the currents, it's like a stick a flag in the soil of your heart, like the Marines stuck a flag on Iwo Jima and raised that flag because this island now is Americans. This heart now belongs to Jesus, and I won't let it drift. I won't let it be deceived, and I don't want it to lose the zeal, the affection, the passion for Jesus Christ. So resolve. So I'll step back, and we can ask this question. Where are we unresolved in our relationship or our walk with Jesus? Where's our heart unprotected? Where's our heart not set? Where's our heart prone to anything but Christ? Now, as you think about that, let me, let me say this, because this is the most important thing. Where does this kind of resolve come from? I mean, I look at Daniel and I think, man, if Daniel, if I were in Daniel's shoes, would I be making this resolutions? Would I be resolving how not to defile myself in Babylon? I was like, no, I'd probably be having a pity party. If I were Joseph and my brothers had sold me into slavery, you know, kind of deceived my father that I had been murdered, and now I'm having to work in some guy's house that I don't really like, and his wife's flirtatious with me, and she threw herself at me, could I refuse that and call it an immense evil? Or could I say, you know what? Nobody's perfect and God understands. I don't really have the answer. But I want to ask the question, where do such resolves come from? Where does the resolve for the church to be the church come from? Where does the resolve to follow Jesus come hell or high water come from? Where does the resolve to be a Christ follower when it's popular and when it's not? Where does that come from? Where does the resolve come from that we're seeing in the text that Barnabas went to Antioch to say, listen, it is great what God's doing in you now, but you got to protect it. You got to resolve to stay there because the enemy's not going to let up. Where does that come from? And the clearest answer is that it comes from the resolve of Jesus. That when we look in the gospel accounts, we see Jesus Christ resolved 
to go and die my death, your death, for me, for you, instead of me, instead of you, so that I can be adopted, be redeemed, be reconciled to God, so that I can call God Father, so that God can call me son or daughter, so that God can make his home in my heart and put his Holy Spirit in me, and I become his temple. So we look at the resolve of Jesus. And you go through the Gospel of Luke, and about right here in Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus' resolve start showing up in his actions. And here's what it says. It says, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, that's the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and then the ascension into heaven. Here's our word again. It keeps showing up, right? He determined. Now, literally, if we were reading that in the Greek, and I don't necessarily know Greek, but sometimes I want to quote it because it's powerful. Literally, it says, he set his face like flint. He set his so there was deep resolve to journey to Jerusalem, which is to say he deeply resolved, deeply determined to go to the cross and die for Matt Evans, for every single person listening to me, for every unreached people group in the Amazon in the Middle East, for everyone. And so his resolve to demonstrate and give that kind of love is where my resolve, where Joseph-like resolve, where Daniel-like resolve comes from. 1 John 4 says it this way. This is real love. (laughs) And I love that translation. You know, because who doesn't want love? And we've all got this definition. Love is love, right? No, no, love ain't love. Real love is this, not that we loved God, because we didn't. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, or you could say, but he loved us anyway, and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And here it is, Jesus living out, 1 John 4, 10, in his determination, his resolve to go to Jerusalem, to show us real love, to give us real love. Romans, Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 8, that God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proves his resolve to love rebellious people like me, like you, that while I was still a sinner, while I wasn't good enough, while I was not interested in God, while I was living my own life, while I was preferring anything to God, while Jesus was not my life, Christ still died for me. And when I see that resolve, it produces a reciprocal resolve when I receive it in faith, humility, and teachability. It produces a a reciprocal resolve where I'm now resolved to follow him. I'm now resolved to love him. And and let me stop. Let me stop. So, so, So for all of us, One of the things we have to do to keep our heart resolved is to keep our heart awash in the love of God as displayed in the death of the Son of God. And and so one of the reasons I tell us all that First Wednesday is the most important service of the month 
is not only because of prayer, but because we take the Lord's Supper, which is when we physically sort of reenact, remember, recall, refresh ourselves in the death of Jesus, which as Scripture has just showed us is what real love is. Now, let's go back to a story and show how this works out to produce resolve. So there's this guy named Peter, and Peter was a follower of Jesus, followed him for, I don't know, a year and a half, three years, something like that. And at the end of Jesus' life for, the res- for, the, for his crucifixion, Peter denied Jesus three times. It's, very, it's kind of real famous. He said, I'll never re- deny you. I'll never deny you. I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, you will. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter's heart wasn't resolved. And so when it became inconvenient or uncomfortable to be identified with Jesus, Peter would just deny Jesus. And so, but then Jesus comes back to life in the resurrection and before the ascension, Jesus reinstates Peter. And the reinstatement or the reconciliation with Peter and, and, and what he, the path he puts Peter on is all driven by the love that Peter has for Jesus and Jesus has for Peter. So, so what's just one part of the interaction? He comes up to, uh, he comes up to uh, Simon and he says this. He makes this statement. And I'll, I'll read it for you because we got the slide a little messed up. He says, Simon, son of John, so Peter, do you love me? That's a simple question. Do you love me? And, and, and Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. And so he gives him his path. He says, all right, I want you to be a shepherd of my sheep. So, so he wants Peter to be resolved to move into some form of teaching and pastoral ministry. But where is that resolve going to come from according to Jesus? Is it going to come from, hey, Peter, do better next time? No. Is it going to come from Peter, hey, try harder? Is it gonna, no, it's going to come from, Peter, do you love me? Because I have loved you. And so I'll say it this way. Our doing comes from what he has done, flows from what he's done, is driven by what he's done. So when I am awash in the love of God, when I am devoted to God in this kind of love, it's easier for me to see when I would act out of bounds of that love. And it's easier for me to resolve like Joseph and say, no, I'm not going there. It's easier for me to resolve like Daniel and say, no, I'm going to keep myself sanctified or consecrated or set apart to God. It's easier for the church at Antioch to remain true to God when they understand the depths of what God has done for them. So part of our challenge in American Christianity is to not ever get over what God has done for us and to stay fresh in the love of God. Paul will say it this way. And this is where resolving comes from. He says, listen, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation. There it is, work it out. Be resolved to work out your salvation. Work out the grace that God has given you with fear and trembling, for it is God who's working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. 
So as God works in us, in his love for us, as proven, demonstrated, declared, displayed, and poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit through what he's done for us on the cross, we want to reciprocate that by resolving to stay in love, to grow in love with God, which is what Solomon would not do. He wouldn't draw the boundary. He wouldn't resolve to build a guardrail. So when we, are underst- when we understand and we get a, a taste of this gospel love, what Christ has done for us, how God has worked in us, then, then it's easy to say this. Then we look at our lives and we look at Satan's influences and we look at our temptations and we look at our weaknesses and we look at our purpose to love God back. Peter, Like the question to Peter, do you love me? Well, then here's what I want you to do. Then it's easy to say, hey, I've got impulses that need to be controlled. I've got a holy purpose that needs to be pursued. I've got passion that's got to be maintained. I've got stupid that's got to be avoided. And I've got a heart that's got to be guarded. And we, put, and we resolve like Joseph, like Daniel. We resolve to stay in love with God. <coughs> we resolve to love God back. So, excuse me, I just want us to think about this. Because if you're like me, this season has identified in Matt Evans some unresolved areas, which are in effect vulnerable areas to Satan, to my own sin, flesh, pride, to fear, to discouragement, to defeatism, to susceptibility, to vulnerability to the enemy. And so if God is going to revive us, restore us, rejuvenate us, reignite us, we also got to work out by resolving. So I'll share a couple with you, a couple of categories just to help you. I think all of us need to develop maybe some never quit resolves. I know there's marriages in, church, in trouble in our church. There was a time when what you're considering, you never would have considered. Just never quit your marriage. Maybe that's the resolve. Now, now listen, I know there's some reasons that are legitimate reasons, biblical reasons. But a lot of times... There's just no more resolve to protect the marriage. Maybe there's never quit resolve. I'm never giving up on the church. She ain't perfect. She ain't always pretty, but she is the bride of Christ. So I I just put that out there. Where do you just need to say, God, I'm resolved never to quit? I think we need some guardrail resolves. You know what a guardrail's for, right? I want to hit a guardrail more than I want to go over a cliff, right? So there's guardrail resolves. Guardrail resolves of, hey, I'm just not going to go there. Instead of getting as close as I can to the edge and then maybe potentially falling off or getting lured off, I'm going to just take back and make a guardrail to protect my life or to protect my marriage or to protect my purity or to protect my ministry or to protect my witness or to protect what God's doing in in, in my life. It's one of guardrail resolves. There's training resolves. See, God wants to train you 
to be someone you may not be right now. So, so God wants us to have love and joy and peace and patience. God wants us to be compassionate. God wants us to overcome addictions. God wants us to be delivered from whatever enslaves us and holds us back. And so God takes us through this training process, right? Where we, can do, where we, be, we learn through the grace of God working in us how to be more patient. We learn how, how, to, be, how to be more compassionate. We learn how to manage or get rid of our anger. And, and it's called training. See, a lot of people say, hey, I'm going to try next time. Well, that'd be like me saying, hey, I'm going to try to run a marathon tomorrow. I mean, I'd get certain far, but I wouldn't make 26.2. But I can tell you this, I have trained to run a marathon. And training is different than trying. So when people are like, hey, I'm going to quit drinking. Okay, what's your plan? What's your result for that? No, I'm going to quit drinking. Okay, what's your plan for that? No, I'm just going to quit drinking. Or, hey, I, I'm not going to be as harsh with my kids with my tone of voice. Okay, what's your plan for that? I'm just not going to be as... No, 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 that's an intention. That's not a resolution. That's not a resolve. A resolve is, hey, I'm going to memorize Proverbs 15.1, which tells me a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. I'm going to memorize Proverbs 15.4, and I'm going to invite some of my faith friends in my small group to hold me accountable. I'm going to ask them to ask me every week, how is my tongue toward my wife and toward my kids? That's a resolve, Right? Well, we don't do that in my small group. We just talk about the SEC football game coming up. Well, then we need to resolve in our small group to help each other train to be like Christ, right? Training. And, and, then, and then there's some what I'll call never turning back, never going back resolves. When Jesus called his first disciples, they were fishermen. That was their career. That's all they knew. And they dropped their nets and followed him. When Elijah called this new prophet Elisha to follow him, he burned his plows, slaughtered his oxen, and left everything to follow the prophet. Sometimes in our hearts, we've got to say, hey, look, I'm not going back there. And we make a resolve. We stick a flag there. And, and let me tell you the value of the flag. When you do wander, and you and I will wander, when we do drift, and we'll still drift this side of heaven, we're not glorified yet. That flag is a place of return. And I think there's some people here, God's calling you to return. And you made a commitment to him 20 years ago, two months ago, but you've already drifted or you've drifted or you've been deceived or you've been vulnerable, but you have a place of return. And it's that resolve that you made. So return to him if that's the resolution that the Holy Spirit is calling you to right now. But for all of us, would we resolve to keep our heart in love with Christ and taking next steps with him, for him, and through him for his glory and for his purposes to prevail in our lives and in his church. Some of you today, here's your invitation. If you were to die today, you would miss heaven. But the invitation is not to miss heaven or make hell or make heaven and miss hell. The invitation is to follow Jesus. Following is in itself a resolve. And you follow him, why? Because he resolved, he determined, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and die for you and die instead of you so that you could call him father 
and he could call you son or daughter. So if today is your day to become a student, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, would you just say yes to the Holy Spirit that's working in your heart? But today can't be the only day of resolve. Our whole life of following him is one of remaining in love with him through the resolves of a heart set ablaze by the love of God displayed on the cross of the Son of God and poured into our hearts by the Spirit of God. Let us pray together. God, I'll ask you just to work in every heart here in the room. You're sovereign, God. I can't work this. I can't preach this. Your Spirit has to do this. So, God, I just pray that there's not a single heart that's unaffected. I pray there's not a single heart that's foggy. I pray there's not a single heart that's indifferent or ambivalent. If there are, God, I pray you forgive us right now. Because if our hearts are not affected by the gospel, the problem is not with the gospel. It's with the heart. God, call some people home right now back to you to return to you. God, save people right now. Make disciples of your son right now. Make followers of Jesus right now. But also, God, would you put a flag in the people listening to this message, put a flag in the soul of our heart, a flag of resolve that may fit a marriage. It may fit an issue we're dealing with. Maybe something where we just say we're not ever going to quit. We're not ever going to go back. But God, would you just put resolve in heart after heart after heart after heart as we see your resolve to die instead of us and to die for us and to put your love into us. And God, I just want to put this question that you asked Peter out here and let your Holy Spirit work it. To the church, to the folks listening to this sermon on this day in history, the words of Jesus Hey, folks, do you love him? Do you love him? And may you know that you know that you know that he loves you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.